AI is kind of working on Moore's law and it's changing very, very quickly. And right, it, it is creating jobs, it's creating entire companies, but it's costing jobs. A lot of these layoffs in tech are companies saying, hey, we're really shifting our focus to AI. And if you're doing something that doesn't have something to do with that, you better get those skills quick because we may not need you. And, and that's a scary thing. Hey, Scott, how are you? I am well, Michael. Big week. Big week. Uh, let's start with the, the highest profile event of the week. That was on uh, Wednesday uh, when there was a group of five tech CEOs that got called in front of the United States Senate, a, a subcommittee to talk about child protection on their social platforms. It was usual names. Uh, Discord CEO Jason Citrin, Snap CEO Evan Siegel, TikTok CEO Shuzi Chu, ex-CEO uh, Linda Vaccarino, and most of all, the uh, the star of the show, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. So you covered this, and I was watching it as well. Uh, we've seen this happen many times. It was it, it, You got the feeling at the beginning, well, it's just going to be the same old thing. Mark Zuckerberg comes in, gives testimony for the eighth time, and the congressmen, the senators aren't prepared and they ask stupid, shallow questions, and Zuckerberg walks away, having made fools out of them and not committed to do anything. Well, this time, I think you'll agree, it was different. You had the senators came, loaded for bear, they had been briefed, they had, had looked into all the studies and research about the number of children that have been exploited or damaged uh, by on these social sites, the uh, expose in the Wall Street Journal. So the congressman started out hot and heavy, bipartisan. Interestingly enough, both parties seemed to agree that this was a serious problem. And it kicked off with some very strong words from uh, Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, who essentially accused, not even essentially, in these words, said that Mark Zuckerman had blood on his hands. And then it got more serious from there. What was your sense of all this? And, and what was going on in the back of the room? Yeah, this was very serious. Everyone came prepared. They at least listened to their younger staffers or let some of the people like Josh Hawley, who's very young and impressive at this, uh, take over. In the back of the room, they had parents whose children had either suffered mental harm or even death, uh, they say, at the hands of these social media companies. So it was a very serious background. When Zuckerberg walked in, he had to pass them. They stood holding photos of their children, um, and he had to look them in the eye even to start things off, uh, not to mention later when Senator Hawley asked him, hey, you should be addressing these parents and telling them um, how you feel about their presence here today. And, and eventually Mark Zuckerberg did turn around, um, sort of off mic, told them, you know, you should not have to go through this. Nobody should. Um, and, you know, talking about how he's going to work to uh, try to solve these problems. It was it was a better performance than usual for Zuckerberg in these situations. But still to tell parents, I mean, he was just a couple of feet away from parents who had lost their children, you know, that we are spending money on uh, new technology. It, it just was a bit tone deaf even even then. But the whole thing from Amy Klobuchar to Ted Cruz to Josh Hawley, uh, very much prepared, very much incendiary 
uh, really holding these CEOs' feet to the fire as they have not been held in past hearings. Yeah, uh, the exact words from Zuckerberg to the parents, he began with, I'm sorry for everything that you all have been through. And then it, he ends up talking about, oh, we're doing a lot of stuff. You know, uh, was that a prepared statement, you think? Do you think he, his people knew, the PR people knew that what he might face? And they gave, him a, gave him a statement to make? It's funny. I've been asked that a lot. And, and my thought is no, that his statement wasn't prepared. I mean, he might have thought, okay, we know parents are going to be there. At some point, I might have a chance to talk to them. What surprised me, if indeed there was PR done here, is that it could have been done early in the session. When Zuckerberg walked in, steps away from those parents who were standing there, he could have met them face to face and eye to eye right then and said, you know, look, I know what you're going through. Um, I fear what you're going through. I'm a, I'm a parent myself. We know that this site, while beneficial to some, has been harmful to others, and I'm sorry about that. And that would have taken away 90% of the ammunition that the senators brought to him and Yaccarino and Shu and, and the others um, during the day, but he didn't do that. And so he, I, I don't think this was a PR orchestrated thing because it could have been done so much better. Um, but I, I do feel that it was heartfelt. But, you know, Zuckerberg being, being Zuckerberg, he quickly got to the technology and the money being spent to try to solve these problems in, instead of just speaking as one parent to another. Well, and he was he was asked a question, are you going to make compensation to the to the witnesses? No answer. You know, they asked him all sorts of things. What are you going to do? We're doing it now. I, I didn't hear any promises to do anything in his testimony. Right. And, and there doesn't have to be, as things stand now, uh, any sort of recompense from the metas of the world to those people parents. But Senator Klobuchar late in the session brought up something and said, I, you know, she said, I'm tired, essentially, of hearing what you're doing and what you're going to do, because we have heard this over and over each time you come to Capitol Hill, and it's apparently not enough to help these children. And what she suggested was to essentially remove the Section 230 protection from Facebook and Twitter and Discord and TikTok and the others to say, uh, once you are financially responsible for what happens on the site, then, then things will change, but not until then. And I think she's right. It, it's hard to imagine uh, these things really getting fixed unless and until the sites are held responsible for them. I think they'd fight removing Section 230 to their very last breath, these companies. I agree. It's part of their business model. They, you know, they're built on this. Right. But then you have people whose children are harmed or even killed. Um, yes. And no one is really held to blame. And that's not really how our justice system works. So maybe while I have been a fan of it before, maybe 230 is flawed. Um, well, OK, it's definitely flawed. Maybe it's flawed to the point where it's unjustly protecting these companies uh, and therefore, since they don't have to be held responsible, it's unjustly harming these kids. You know, I, I was interviewed yesterday by, by the BBC, and they said, what can be done about this? And I, I kind of tongue-in-cheek suggested maybe the Senate had ought to hold these, these hearings once a month because 
inevitably, as we talked about last week, two weeks before the Senate hearing is going to take place, these companies announce a flurry of new safety features and all of that, as if they're doing it just for protecting themselves when they get in front of the, the senators. I mean, perhaps, but look, 24 hours after those hearings, Facebook, you know, Meta announced earnings. They blew past every metric. Their stock exploded after hours. They're even going to pay a dividend, about time for a tech company of that size. Um, but their model, as we realize, is extremely profitable. And so isn't up, part of that... Up, went up 2%, which is billions of dollars. Right. Right. And, you know, a stock that goes up 50, 60 bucks after hours after your earnings shows confidence, not only in what you just have done, but what you will do in the future. And so that model is so profitable. Um, and it's partly because they're not being held accountable for the problems that are damaging those children. Yeah. OK, well, let's we, let's get into that. We'll see if there's been there's any change at all. I'm hoping Uh you know, this has been going, we've known this stuff for 10 years. The fact that Zuckerberg actually said, we, he started to say there's no evidence for this damage. And I think he might have caught himself or been interrupted or what happened, but they're still using that line, even after we've seen reams of evidence to the contrary. And I'm not sure they're fixable. I'm not sure they can change who they are to adjust to this moral, you know, reality. We'll see. Okay, uh, Earnings Week. You love Earnings Week, don't you? It's a, it's a great supply of stories. Um, been an interesting week. Uh, there's been some questions, you know, and the Valley's laid off. The Valley laid off 25,000 people. I don't the reading of it. I'm not confused if it's the Bay Area or tech or the Silicon Valley, but 25,000 people from tech companies got laid off in January alone, which is an astonishing number. So that would suggest the companies might be a little troubled. But then we look at earnings week of the so-called magnificent. They're calling it the Magnificent Seven now: Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Nvidia, Meta, Microsoft, and Tesla. Uh, Microsoft doing great guns. It just crossed, it just became a $3 trillion company, putting it up there with Apple, mostly because they went in with both feet into AI and AI is the hottest thing around. Meta, we just talked about it, record profits. So the year of, the year of fixing, refurbishing themselves and uh, getting kind of away from uh, the metaverse Stock goes up 2%, record profits in their history. Alphabet had a pretty good quarter revenues of $61 billion, but the stock kind of hovered because there's some concern by the street that uh, Alphabet's advertising revenues are not as strong as they were. Uh, and then Apple. Apple's always been the shining star while all these other companies have been in trouble. Apple's had a, you know, it's had a rough year. In fact, it had four quarters of declining revenues last year, which is as high as, as bad as it's ever been. They've never had five consecutive quarters. So everybody was holding their breath. And Apple came in uh, 
up 2% in revenues. So they escaped, you know, the, the jail of, of, of downward sloping revenues. But there's a lot of concern about Apple. Uh, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal. I don't know if you saw it by a columnist named Christopher Wims. And he talked about Apple as the walled garden, which that is, they don't really work with anybody else. You you buy everything you want from Apple and they control access. And he didn't state it, but it's kind of a reminder of the 1990s when Apple lost 80 points of market share because like Yahoo, they created a world that you either lived in or you were on the outside. And when Apple couldn't do games and Windows could, Apple got hurt badly. Apple's great success have been based on we own all the intellectual property. You buy it from us and you get the best. And when they can maintain the best, they do really well. But the point this guy was making was the walled garden. If you look closely, Apple's numbers seem to be increasingly about services and not about products. And he he voiced concern about that. Once again, the walled garden. And you look at China, China has barked on a big patriotic program of don't buy Apple, buy, buy Huawei products. And uh, with the declining Chinese economy and this, this government-run initiative, China's not the, uh, not the cash cow for Apple that it's been for many years. Where does Apple go? You know, it's a big question. I think that's the reason why on a day when, uh, after earnings came out, Meta stock went up 15%, like $60 a share. Apple dropped about 3%, uh, even yeah. though, like you said, it uh, beat the numbers, it beat expectations, top and bottom line. But some weakness in China uh, doesn't bode well for Apple uh, because unlike a lot of those companies, it's a little more dependent on China than they are. And so that hurts. And, uh, you know, Apple doesn't really, I think, have an answer for, I mean, what's another consumer market that, that that's that big, uh, yes. you know, that buys that many smartphones and watches and things like that. Uh, so if, if the Chinese market struggles for Apple, I don't know that there's anywhere it can pick up the slack. It's just so popular uh, everywhere else. And so that's why I think right now, Microsoft diving into AI is the most valuable company in the world, above $3 trillion as you and I speak. And Apple, having sort of soft-pedaled AI and focused on the hardware, is number two, somewhere beneath $3 trillion as you and I speak. And, um, you know, I don't want to say we're at peak Apple or peak smartphone, but uh, Apple needs to come up with something. Is it going to be the Vision Pro? I would argue not in the short term. Out of $3,500. Right. You know, that's going to be a niche thing, I think, for at least some time. Uh, to me, that's the tech version of the Cybertruck. You know, there are people out there who will afford it and love it. Uh, but but do we really want it as a society? And so I think Apple's got a big challenge right now that uh, it's interesting. During the conference call, Tim Cook really for the first time mentioned AI, just sort of teased ahead. And I wonder if there was some pressure on him to do that because of all the success of Microsoft and NVIDIA, and all those companies that are saying AI and watching their stocks just bloom. Well, we've heard all we heard those crazy rumors we talked about a couple of weeks ago that Apple had an EV waiting in the wings out of some skunk works. Have you heard anything about an initiative inside of Apple for AI? No, uh, I, I think, 
we've gotten the clues in Apple talking about how if you move your finger, the watch will understand and go to a different screen. With the Vision Pro, when we got to see that in action, it scans yeah. your hands, and when you move your hands, it knows that you want to touch a certain app or click on something. It's actually impressively intuitive. That's AI at work, too. Sure. Apple, for some reason, just hasn't come out and said it. And, and maybe they're holding themselves thinking, well, we're just the elite. We don't have to say AI, even though it's in our products. And I think their investors are paying the price for that because everybody seems to want to hear it, especially investors and Wall Street. And not just embed it and say, well, our, our customers are smart enough to know it's right there. Right. I agree. It, it's it, it's kind of uncharacteristic of Apple. I mean, typically they like to be, even if they're a little late, they want to be the best, uh, the premium product. And if they're not explicitly trying to create, <laughs> excuse me, if they're, if they're not explicitly trying to create the killer app, what are they doing? You know, I don't know. Making, you know, having seen the Vision Watch, making it a little easier for your phone. That's not yeah. enough. That's not Apple. I, I don't know. And I think you bring up a good point. I mean, Samsung came out AI guns blazing with their latest smartphone. It was all about AI. Oh, yeah. And Apple still won't talk about AI in its smartphone. It came out with the Vision Pro which is full of artificial intelligence. It's a whole trip into the metaverse, you know, for better or for worse. And whether or not we want to surf with something like a ski goggle on our head, um, it's really an impressive piece of technology. I will give them that. And it's got AI embedded all over the place and they're still not talking about it. I, I don't know why. And I'm guessing when, when Tim Cook mentioned it in the call, that his financial people were saying, look, we got to start talking about this. We have to start hitting investors over the head with this because that's what they want to hear. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it. This years ago, this would have been the, oh, and another thing in one of Steve Jobs' annual, annual presentations. And then we would have blown our minds and everybody would have wanted the Apple AI product. And, you know, it one is a different thing. We, given it one over more thing. <laughs> okay, uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed, he came out of the Fed meeting this week and said it's, quote, not likely that the uh, uh, March meeting they'll cut interest rates. The market wasn't real happy with that. They were expecting to see, you know, cuts all year long in preparation for the election, trying to drive, you know, the bad stuff out of the economy. He still has another arrow in his quiver, which is quantitative easing, and he hinted at that which is you just reduce the money supply and kind of choke the market down. But it was kind of unexpected. What does that augur for the rest of the year, you think? I mean, I just think the Fed is being cautious, and that makes sense. I mean, inflation has slowed in terms of how it's growing, but it hasn't anywhere near gone away. And I think Powell is sensitive to the fact that people are still seeing higher prices at the grocery store, Again, not as high, uh, same with gas stations, but they're still feeling it. And look, the market didn't take it that bad. I mean, it did on, what was it? Wednesday. Wednesday was a bloodbath. Thursday, the market was up like 370 points, the NASDAQ up almost 200. And then you got all those earnings. You know, in other words, momentum shifts quickly on Wall Street. I don't think yeah. they're dwelling on this. 
But as far as interest rate cuts, which I know a lot of potential homeowners would love to see uh, for the, you know, the mortgage rates to go down even further, um, that just may take time because the Fed is super cautious. And remember, the Fed is getting criticized now for not cutting fast enough. Um, but when it started to raise interest rates, people were like, oh, they're not raising fast enough. Inflation's gotten ahead of them. So they, you know, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. But I think a cautious Fed makes sense. You know, you and I talk every week. Uh, we financial reporters talk about this stuff every day. But really, investors are in it. At least they should be in it for the long haul. And right. if the cut comes in, you know, May or June instead of March, you know, we are eventually going to get lower interest rates. And I think that was the goal this whole time. I heard an interesting comment from a Fed veteran uh, the other day talking about all this. And he pointed out rightly that the only thing you remember about a Fed chairman is whether they got control of inflation. In the long term, that's all historians care about. So that becomes their obsession. And I think if you look through the lens of all that, you know, you get an idea, you get a sense of kind of what their thinking is in some way. So I think they're going to have to get back to doing the cuts pretty soon because they want they want to wring the inflation out of the economy at some point. And right. they'll probably do it before the election. Yes, I expect it'll be a popular move before the election. But you also have to show before you really cut deeply into those interest rates that inflation has been beaten back. And I think that's Powell's worry is that he can't quite show that inflation's been beaten back as far as he wants to show that inflation had been beaten back. I think that's true. Okay, finally, did you go on TikTok today? No, I managed not to. <laughs> Why? <laughs> uh, this is a very interesting dispute that I, I assumed would be settled by now. But uh, Universal Music Group, which controls, what, a third or a half of all the music property on Earth, uh, told TikTok, you're not giving us enough money, and we're going to leave. We're going to pack up, you know, we're going to pack up Taylor Swift and you too and Ariana Grande, and we're just going to leave your site. And I thought, well, how could you do that with TikTok? TikTok, enormous. But it turns out, TikTok only represents 1% of the usage of Universal Music Group. That's all their business. And then I realized they're a rounding error. That's how big Universal Music Group is. A TikTok business is a rounding error. And apparently, talks broke down and uh, all those artists disappeared off TikTok today. Yeah. TikTok uses music in a much different way, and, and its users use music in a much different way than, say, Spotify. Spotify is where the action is. Apple Music is where the action is. If you're an artist, and remember, there were some artists that, that took their time before hopping on those streaming services, but now it's really where you find music. TikTok, it seems, and I say this as someone who is admittedly way older than their target audience, but TikTok is where a song, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be a current song. It's, you know, occasionally you see these old songs get a new life because they're used in a dance or something like that. Um, but as far as where young people go to stream full songs and full albums, and, you know, when the new Taylor Swift or Beyonce or whatever it is drops, it's going to drop as an album on Spotify, on Apple Music, on Tidal, that sort of thing. And so that is one of the issues 
facing TikTok is a music company can walk away and know it's not giving up a whole lot of business. Also, and I was reading this about the universal thing, um, the AI fakes are coming to TikTok. And if it's an AI fake, you don't even get your pennies or whatever you get per stream if you're a music company. And that, and we just had a whole strike about this in Hollywood, that really is something that the music industry needs to deal with very quickly because AI is just getting better and better and harder and harder to detect. And we don't have a Steve Jobs to just come in and cut the Gordian knot and and solve this problem like we had with downloads. It's going to be interesting. We've It's amazing the impact AI has had in just a year. You know, you think, when was the first time we heard about chat? About a year ago. And yeah. now it's everywhere. And it's affecting the structure of the economy of business relationships and contracts and everything else. If Moore's Law works on, on AI... Just imagine what it's going to be like in about three years. I think that's something worth being concerned about uh, legitimately because look at those NVIDIA chips. Look at those AMD chips. AI is kind of working on Moore's Law and it's changing very, very quickly. And right, it, it is creating jobs. It's creating entire companies, but it's costing jobs. A lot of these layoffs in tech are companies saying, hey, we're really shifting our focus to AI. And if you're doing something that doesn't have something to do with that, you better get those skills quick because we may not need you. And, and that's a scary thing. Okay. Well, that's it for now, folks. You can find us on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. You can see Scott on Facebook and X and, of course, almost every weeknight on NBC Bay Area. And me occasionally everywhere in the world on BBC World Radio show Business Matters. Have a great weekend. Next weekend. Super Bowl. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.